Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Today in episode 129, you will hear an audio version of chapter 7 of my new book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. And here I discuss what the earliest Christians believed the church would experience during the years just before Jesus' second coming, and also answer a few rebuttals to that position. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Now, also, if you like this chapter and you want to hear the entire book, you can get an audio version of the entire book on Amazon. You can also get paperback copies and Kindle format as well there. So please go check that out. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review there. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and you can hear all of our weekly content on the Omega Frequency Live YouTube channel. So go subscribe there if you haven't already. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 129. Chapter 7, Martyrdom in the End Times. Quote, The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Unquote. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. The subject of eschatology is polarizing, to say the least, with people generally falling into one of two camps. Some are extremely opinionated, while others are apathetic and take the pan-trib stance, meaning that things will pan out in the end. I fall in the opinionated party, but hold strongly to the belief that I'm going to end up being wrong in many areas. After all, how many folks in the first century got everything right about Jesus' first advent? Other than the issue of Jesus' millennial reign, the main divisive eschatological topic in modern Christendom appears to be whether or not Christians will face the wrath of the Antichrist and experience martyrdom at his hands. The universal testimony of the earliest Christians is that followers of Jesus will be persecuted by the Antichrist, and many Christians will fall away from the faith during his reign of terror. Also, they believe that though Christians will experience the wrath of Satan and the Antichrist, true believers who faithfully persevere will not experience the wrath of God. When Jesus returns in flaming fire with resurrected believers and his mighty angels to pour out his wrath upon the earth, he will gather us who remain to himself and transform us to be in conformity with his glorious and incorruptible body. Standing in stark contrast to the eschatological writings of the early Christians is the doctrine of pre-tribulationalism. 
Pre-tribulationalism is the belief that just before the Great Tribulation begins, Jesus suddenly and secretly returns to rapture true Christians from the earth so they won't experience the persecution of the Antichrist and the accompanying catastrophic events of those seven years. Then, at the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus visibly returns again to triumph over the enemies of God. Of this belief, Dr. Craig Keener writes, quote, Around 1830, John Nelson Darby formulated traditional dispensationalism and with it the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. There is no record of anyone promoting a pre-tribulational rapture before about 1830, unquote. Yet, it eventually became exceedingly popular in the United States of America and is now taught by several major seminaries as the orthodox position. However, as stated earlier, the doctrine of a pre-tribulational secret return of Jesus to rapture the church is completely absent from the writings of the earliest Christians. Only a person who is highly skilled in eisegesis and hermeneutical gymnastics could claim to find compelling evidence to the contrary in their writings. I admit the possibility that those early believers could be wrong about this issue, but it's clear that they were all in agreement. Thus, I will begin this chapter by showing eight examples of early Christian writings which demonstrate their assertion that the church will be persecuted by the Antichrist. Then, I will deal with three common objections to their belief. The Didache, AD 80 through 120, quote, Watch over your life. Do not let your lamps burn out, nor your waist be ungirded, but be ready. For you do not know when our Lord is coming. And gather together frequently, seeking what is necessary for your souls. For all your years of faith will count for nothing unless you are perfected in the last days. In the last days, false prophets and corruptors will multiply and the sheep will turn into wolves and love will be turned into hate. As lawlessness increases, men will hate and persecute and betray one another. And then the deceiver of the world will appear as a son of God and will do signs and wonders and the earth will be delivered into his hands. He will commit abominations which have never been since the world began. Then all mankind will come to the fire of testing and many will fail and perish. But those who endure in their faith will be saved by him who was accursed. And then shall the signs of the truth appear, first a sign of a rift in the heavens, then a sign of a voice of a trumpet, and thirdly the resurrection of the dead. Yet not of all, but as it was said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then shall the world see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and dominion to repay each man according to his works with justice before all men and the angels. Amen. Unquote. The Shepherd of Hermas, A.D. 150. Happy are you who endure the great tribulation that is coming. And happy are those who will not deny their own life. For the Lord has sworn by his Son 
that those who denied their Lord have abandoned their life in despair, unquote. Justin Martyr, A.D. 160, quote, Two advents of Christ have been announced. In the first one, he is sent forth as suffering, inglorious, dishonored, and crucified. However, in the other advent, he will come from heaven with glory when the man of apostasy who speaks strange things against the Most High will venture to do unlawful deeds on the earth against us Christians. Unquote. Irenaeus. A.D. 180, quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision, for that was seen toward the end of Domitian's reign. But he indicates the number of the name now, 666, that when this man comes, we may avoid him, being aware of who he is. But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem, and then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire." Hippolytus, A.D. 205, quote, When the times are fulfilled and the ten horns spring from the beast in the last days, then the Antichrist will appear among them. When he makes war against the saints and persecutes them, then we can expect the manifestation of the Lord from heaven, unquote. Commodianus, A.D. 240, quote, from heaven will descend the city in the first resurrection. We shall arise again to him who have been devoted to him, and they shall be incorruptible, even already living without death, and neither will there be any grief nor any groaning in that city. They shall come also who overcame cruel martyrdom under Antichrist, and they themselves live for the whole time and receive blessings because they have suffered evil things. Unquote. Cyprian, A.D. 250, quote, Antichrist, when he shall begin to come, shall not enter into the church because he threatens, neither shall we yield to his arms and violence because he declares that he will destroy us if we resist. For you ought to know and to believe and hold it for certain that the day of affliction has begun to hang over our heads and the end of the world and the time of Antichrist to draw near so that we must all stand prepared for the battle, nor consider anything but the glory of life eternal and the crown of the confession of the Lord. A severer and fiercer fight is now threatening for which the soldiers of Christ ought to prepare themselves with uncorrupted faith and robust courage, unquote. Victorinus, A.D. 270 through 310, quote, The little season signifies three years and six months, in which, with all his power, the devil will avenge himself under Antichrist against the church. Finally, he says, after that, the devil shall be loosed and will seduce the nations in the whole world 
and will entice war against the church, the number of whose foes shall be as the sand of the sea. Unquote. Victorinus is one of a few third century Christians who began to articulate amillennial views on Jesus' earthly reign. Despite this small difference of opinion on Jesus' millennial kingdom, all of the early Christians believed the church would be persecuted by the Antichrist. Again, the overwhelming testimony of the earliest Christians is that many faithful followers of Jesus will be martyred by the Antichrist before Jesus raptures the church. Now, I will put forward three common objections to the early church's stance on this matter and give scriptural refutation to those objections. Additionally, I will let Hippolytus, a spiritual great-grandson of the Apostle John, respond to these objections via his treatise on Christ and Antichrist. Number one, how can the church be persecuted by the Antichrist if the Bible says that we are not destined for wrath? It's true. Paul writes to believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, quote, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him, unquote. However, is the Antichrist's persecution what Paul had in mind when mentioning God's wrath? First, note that Paul does not contrast wrath with escaping the reign of the Antichrist. He contrasts wrath with obtaining salvation. The better contrast to salvation is eternal damnation, not persecution. Since the Bible is best interpreted in context, let's look at the way Paul uses the same term wrath in other places of the same book. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 10, Paul writes, quote, "You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come." Unquote. Here, Paul praises the Christians in Thessalonica for joyfully staying faithful to the Lord in the midst of much tribulation. Does Paul then write that Jesus rescues us from the wrath of Satan? Or is he saying that Jesus delivers us from hell? Next, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul discusses the scene in Acts 17, where Jews became jealous of Paul and Silas's evangelistic success and began to persecute some of the new converts. We read, quote, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, 
even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost, unquote. Is Paul saying that the Jewish leaders who orchestrated Jesus's murder will be persecuted by the Antichrist or that they will be destroyed in hell? Is he saying that people who reject the gospel will be persecuted by the Antichrist or that they will be eternally damned? If we combine the way these three passages discuss God's wrath, it seems that Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that though followers of Jesus may have to endure tribulation and persecution, Christians don't go to hell. In his writings, Paul makes a clear distinction between wrath and tribulation. Unlike wrath, Paul actually sees tribulation in a redemptive light. For example, Take Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, quote, We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Paul says that we should boast about tribulations because God uses them to make us like Jesus, which fills us with hope. He goes even further in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37, quote, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, unquote. Here, Paul literally writes that in tribulation and persecution, even in being put to death by the sword, Christians are completely and overwhelmingly victorious. Again, Paul does not view tribulation as something like wrath, which we should hope to avoid. That's because while God can redeem the experience of being tortured and executed and use it for our good, the experience of a wrath-filled afterlife cannot be redeemed. As promised, here is a quote from Hippolytus demonstrating he clearly believes the church is going to be persecuted by the Antichrist. Quote, now, concerning the tribulation of the persecution which is to fall upon the church from the adversary, John also speaks thus, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the saints of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And to the woman were given two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the face of the serpent. That refers to the 1,203 score days, the half of the week, during which the tyrant is to reign and persecute the church. Unquote. Number two, the word church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter three. 
isn't that John's way of telling us that the church won't be persecuted by the Antichrist? Dr. John MacArthur uses this reasoning when explaining his support for a pre-tribulational rapture. Though the man is brilliant, there are two issues that need to be addressed concerning his argument. First, the word church is completely missing from the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the letters of 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, and Jude. Does that mean that those books are not meant for the church? Of course not. Second, there are several New Testament words and phrases besides church that refer to Jesus' followers. Here are eight, many of which we have already discussed. Disciples, quote, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Unquote. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. Christians. And he, Barnabas, left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year there, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Unquote. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. Followers of the way. Quote, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Unquote. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 2. Believers. Quote. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Unquote. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-7 through seven. Four down, four to go. Before proceeding, remember that while these terms have their distinctions— they are all used to describe followers of Jesus. This matters because of MacArthur's reasoning that since the word church isn't used after Revelation 3, the church must have been raptured at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. However, as we will see, these last four synonyms for church deal that theory quite a blow, as they are all found in the latter chapters of Revelation. Brethren, Quote, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Unquote. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11 through 11. 
We read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, quote, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. There are several reasons this passage is interesting. First, The souls crying out to God are believers who were slain just like the lamb in Revelation chapter 5. Also, like the lamb, they were violently killed because they bore witness to the word of God. Secondly, as stated in the pre-tribulational tradition, Christians are raptured at the end of Revelation 3, and then the great tribulation begins with God pouring out his wrath of judgment upon the earth. But if that's the case, why are these brethren asking God why he is refraining from judging the earth? Perhaps that's because God has not yet begun to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Finally, Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 is strikingly similar to Paul's encouragement to the brethren in 2 Thessalonians 1 who are faithfully enduring persecution and affliction because of their obedience to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, quote, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, unquote. It seems like John and Paul had similar messages for the church. God is going to avenge his martyrs at Jesus's second coming. Bondservants, quote, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, unquote. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. The term bondservant is one of Paul's favorite descriptors of Christians. I don't know if you caught it, but this term was in the section we just read from Revelation chapter 6, only in a slightly different manner. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11 says, quote, they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also, unquote. The difference between bondservant and fellow servants is literally as minimal as the difference between worker and co-workers. But there's more. 
Just before the seventh seal is opened, John records in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, quote, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. This scene is reminiscent of the events found in Ezekiel 9. God has just shown the prophet Ezekiel a series of abominations being committed by his people in the temple in Jerusalem, and he has had enough. However, just before the angelic executioners pour out God's wrath on the city, he instructs another angel to put a mark on the foreheads of his faithful servants who mourn over the sins of the people. Then Ezekiel writes, quote, To the others, he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads." Notice that while God is pouring out his wrath on the city, those who are sealed remain in the city. They are not removed from the chaos, but they are protected from his wrath. Keep that in mind. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, we see the sealed bondservants of God being protected from certain horrific aspects of the tribulation. Then a fifth angel sounded, And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power." They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death 
and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Unquote. Like the Hebrews in Goshen during the plagues in Exodus, the Lord's bondservants are present but protected. Does that mean that none of the judgments that come upon the earth will affect the followers of Jesus? I highly doubt it. However, the type of protection we can count on relates to what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 29, verses 10 through 19. Quote, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Unquote. The Lord's bondservants who are willing to use their lives to testify to the truth of the gospel in a manner worthy of the gospel can be sure that even if they are killed, they will not perish. In fact, by not loving their lives even unto death, they gain their lives. Wherever and whenever we find ourselves, we bondservants are called to be faithful witnesses and Jesus is going to take care of his faithful witnesses. Witness, quote, The one who has this sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells, unquote. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Notice that the Lord is the one who truly holds the power of the sword. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, quote, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Unquote. We don't know for certain how Antipas was killed, but we know that because he was a faithful witness of the Lord, he has no need to fear the Lord's wrath. The last time the word witness is used after Revelation chapter 3 is in Revelation chapter 17, where we see a pronouncement of Babylon the Great's destruction. John writes, quote, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, 
I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Unquote. One of the many reasons Babylon the Great is so interesting is that she is riding a beast that, just like the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, has seven heads and ten horns, which are full of blasphemous names. Obviously, she is intimately connected with the Antichrist and is drunk with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. The first time the word witness is used after Revelation 3 is in Revelation 11, where we see a showdown between the beast which comes out of the abyss and the Lord's two witnesses. This is the same beast of Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 and Revelation chapter 17 verses 3 through 8. This is the Antichrist. We read, quote, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Unquote. Who are the two witnesses? We don't know for certain. However, the majority view from the early Christians is that they are Enoch and Elijah. Their reasoning is that since Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, quote, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, unquote. And Enoch and Elijah were both miraculously translated from earth to be with their Lord. They are still required to face a physical death. Regardless, though the two witnesses were martyred at the hands of the Antichrist, their story isn't over. Continuing in Revelation chapter 11, verses 8 through 13, Quote, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, unquote. The two witnesses' resurrection and gathering by the Lord to meet him in the clouds seems a lot like the rapture, doesn't it? Also worth noting is that those events occur right before incredible wrath is poured out on the people who are left behind. Then, the promise God made to his slain bond servants back in Revelation chapter 5 begins to be fulfilled. John writes in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, quote, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm, unquote. As the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, the time comes to reward God's bondservants, prophets, and saints. Saints, quote, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, unquote. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 7. Not counting the gospels and revelation, there are over 40 examples of believers in Jesus being referred to as saints in the New Testament. However, as we've gone through so many passages in Revelation, you've probably already noticed John used the word saints several times after chapter 4. Regardless, to conclude this section, we will look at one final passage where the term is used. 
As previously stated, Revelation chapter 13 depicts the rise of the Antichrist from the abyss and describes his satanic reign of terror. Though we will only look at Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 7, you really should study the whole chapter. Quote, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Unquote. Just as Jesus ruled with the power and authority of God, the Antichrist rules with the power and authority of Satan. Just as Jesus was given authority to minister for three and a half years, the Antichrist is given authority to act for roughly three and a half years. Just as Jesus had followers, so will the Antichrist. Just like Jesus was killed and rose from the dead, it appears the Antichrist will as well. Just as Jesus was worshipped as God, so will be the Antichrist. Just as Jesus declared himself to be God in God's temple, so will the Antichrist. However, though Jesus didn't make war on the people who refused to worship him, the Antichrist will make it his mission to slaughter the saints. Hippolytus agrees with this assessment, only he says that the persecution and martyrdom of the saints comes at the request of all the peoples of the world. Quote, Having the mystery of God in our heart, we ought in fear to keep faithfully what has been told us by the blessed prophets, in order that when those things come to pass, we may be prepared for them and not deceived. For when the times advance... The Antichrist, too, of whom these things are said, will be manifested. For he will allure mankind to himself, wishing to gain possession of those who are not his own, and promising deliverance to all. He then, having gathered to himself the unbelieving everywhere throughout the world, comes at their call to persecute the saints, their enemies and antagonists. And he, being puffed up with pride by their subserviency, will begin to dispatch missives against the saints, commanding to cut them all off everywhere on the ground of their refusal to reverence and worship him as God. Unquote. 
Just because the word church isn't used from Revelation 4 onward, there is ample biblical support that Christians will suffer greatly during the Antichrist's reign. Number three, doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus' return is imminent? That he can return at any moment to rapture the church before the tribulation? Before discussing the problems with this objection, I will again turn to John MacArthur to define the doctrine of imminence. Quote, The New Testament is consistent in its anticipation that the return of Christ might occur at any moment. Nothing in the New Testament ever suggests we should defer our expectation of Christ's appearing until other preliminary events can occur. So, the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that Christians should be looking for the imminent coming of Christ for his church. Unquote. For MacArthur and similarly minded authors, there are no signs that we can observe to know the rapture of the church is coming soon. Additionally, the doctrinal statement on the rapture of the church from the Master's Seminary states, quote, We teach the personal, bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation. See 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Titus 2, verse 13. To translate his church from this earth. See John 14, 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 11. And between this event and his glorious return with his saints to reward believers according to their works. See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, unquote. Notice that Dr. MacArthur appeals to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through chapter 5, verse 11 as a section of Scripture speaking to the imminent rapture of the church. Importantly, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul tells us he received his understanding of the Lord's return and the rapture of the church directly from the Lord himself. One of the verses from that passage, which some use to support the doctrine of imminence, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul says the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Peter uses that same imagery of a thief in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, quote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, unquote. It's no coincidence that these two pillars of the church appeal to thief imagery concerning Christ's return, since their rabbi Jesus did the same thing. The Lord Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, quote, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will." Unquote. 
Jesus also uses the analogy of coming like a thief when he says to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, quote, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Unquote. Observe that Jesus calls these believers to wake up so that he will not come to them like a thief. Coming back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul uses similar verbiage about the day of the Lord. We read in verses 2 through 6, quote, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying, Peace and safety! Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Unquote. Jesus, Peter, and Paul all called disciples of Jesus to stay alert so that we are not caught by surprise on the day of the Lord's coming. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 2 and 30 through 31 also talks about the day of the Lord, but calls the reader to be on the lookout for two celestial signs. Quote, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Unquote. For Joel, before the day of the Lord comes, there are going to be unmistakable celestial signs with the sun and the moon. Isaiah chapter 13 verses 6 through 10 also connects the day of the Lord with signs in the sun and moon. Quote, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Unquote. 
It probably should not surprise us that we see the same celestial occurrences in the book of Revelation. What may shock some readers is that they are found with the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. John writes, quote, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand, unquote. At the very least, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb, the day of the Lord, is imminent when these signs occur. Paul also specifically writes about the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. Though he does not mention the sun or moon being darkened before that day, he does give two others other events to look for. Quote, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. Unquote. Paul states that before Jesus returns and believers on earth are gathered to him, before the day of the Lord, the Antichrist will declare himself to be God in God's temple, and a great falling away will occur. Not surprisingly, Jesus discusses the same four previously stated events in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 21 and 29 through 31. Quote, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you 
and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other, unquote. Notice how Jesus says that after the tribulation of those days, he will appear and gather his elect to himself. However, Jesus does teach a form of imminence in the same chapter. After describing all of these signs, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 33, quote, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Unquote. Remember when we discussed how Paul claims to have received his understanding of the Lord coming as a thief from the Lord himself? Dr. Alan Kirshner details 30 parallels between Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians and Matthew chapter 24. I strongly encourage you to check out the fine work Dr. Kirshner has done showing these connections. It's a truly remarkable demonstration of a disciple following the tradition of his rabbi. Finally, in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 gives us this prophecy about the day of the Lord. Quote, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Unquote. Hippolytus tells us that this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled when the events in Revelation chapter 11 unfold. And as we detailed earlier, just after Elijah is killed, the time of God's wrath comes. Hippolytus writes, quote, It is a matter of course that his forerunners must appear first, as he says by Malachi and the angel, quote, I will send to you Elijah the Tishbite before the day of the Lord, the great and notable day comes, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, lest I come and smite the earth utterly. These then shall come and proclaim the manifestation of Christ that is to be from heaven, and they shall also perform signs and wonders in order that men may be put to shame and turn to repentance for their surpassing wickedness and impiety. The beast that shall ascend out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them because they will not give glory to Antichrist. These things then being come to pass and the abomination of desolation being manifested then and the two prophets and forerunners of the Lord having finished their course and the whole world finally approaching the consummation. What remains but the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from heaven, for whom we have looked in hope? Unquote. The early church believed in a version of imminence because the Lord taught a version of imminence. Like Jesus, the early Christians said that once the signs preceding the day of the Lord happen, then his return is truly imminent. Though there are more, we have determined five signs the scriptures teach we can observe before the day of the Lord and the rapture of the church. 1. The sun is darkened. 2. The moon is darkened. 3. The Antichrist declares himself to be God in God's temple. 4. Massive amounts of Christians fall away from the faith. 5. Elijah and the other witness return, are killed, and then resurrected. So, where does this chapter's discussion leave us? It leaves us examining the source of our hope. Is our hope in escaping suffering? Is our hope in being saved from the wrath of the Antichrist? John MacArthur teaches that the blessed hope of Titus chapter 2 verse 13 is a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and he may be right. The early Christians, however, held that our blessed hope is the final appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, not the church escaping tribulation, torture, or murder at the hands of the Antichrist. Though they did not believe they were destined for God's wrath, the early church did not fear the wrath of Satan or his Antichrist. They were not afraid of living through the tribulation and saw doing so as an opportunity to war against the devil by testifying to the truth of the gospel in a manner worthy of the gospel. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. My anxiety concerning martyrdom tells me that I still need to grow in my understanding of God's goodness. I need to grow in my understanding of Jesus' worth. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus tells this parable, quote, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Unquote. There are two ways we can look at this parable. The first describes Jesus' love for us. He so highly valued us 
the treasure in the field, that he joyfully gave all that he had to make us his own. The second view of this parable describes what a proper response to his sacrifice should entail. If we truly understand Jesus' worth, we too would happily give all we have to be with him forever. The loss of all things, no matter how initially painful, would be seen as rubbish compared to the everlasting joy of gaining Christ. Do you treasure Jesus the way he has treasured you? The early Christians treasured Jesus above all and thus viewed martyrdom as a blessing, a privilege, and a powerful means of demonstrating to the world the indescribable worth of Christ. Also, they did not fear those who could kill the body because they believed when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected with incorruptible bodies like his and will be with him forever. That was their blessed hope. And if you share that hope, as Paul wrote, your hope is not in vain. Oh, 
Save your calm, revive your work, save your calm.